Good morning, New Life Church. It is a joy and a privilege to worship with you this morning. And I bring you greetings from the United Christian Church of Dubai, where you have uh, graciously this morning given us your pastor to be preaching. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> and uh, we, we regularly pray for, for you and all the evangelical churches that are in this country that God would continue to advance his purposes and plans even through us. We, we greatly value the partnership that we share in the gospel, in seeing the gospel advanced in this part of the world. And this morning, I am singularly grateful to your elders for inviting me to bring the word of God. It's always a joy to open up God's word with God's people. The, the word of God is God speaking. And so anytime we get the, the opportunity to open it up, we come to it with hearts that are open. We come to it with, with rapt attention because God is speaking to us. So it's always a joy to, to open up God's word with God's people. And this morning, before we do that, I want us to just say a word of prayer together again. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and you have spoken so clearly, even in your word. This morning, we pray that as we approach your word, we ask that you would grant us hearts that are prepared. We pray that you would grant us expectancy and we pray that we would be, uh, be, be obedient to what it says. We pray that, Father, you would deepen our affections and may we be transformed by the power of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on December 18, 2014, just a week before Christmas, the Washington Post, which is a news agency in the U.S., published an article titled, Did Historical Jesus Really Exist? The Evidence Just Doesn't Add Up. This article was written by Raphael Latasta, a professor at the University of Sydney, who has written extensively on a topic that God does not exist. In this article, he argued that there are good reasons to doubt the historical existence of Christ. According to him, and I quote, the first problem we encounter when trying to discover more about the historical Jesus is the lack of early sources. The earliest sources only reference the clearly fictional Christ of faith. These early sources, compiled decades after the alleged events, all stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. He goes on to say that there are no existing eyewitness or contemporary accounts of Jesus. All we have are latter descriptions of Jesus' life event by non-eyewitnesses, most of whom are obviously biased. He makes a lot of claim in the article and finally concludes, given the poor state of the existing sources, and the atrocious methods used by mainstream biblical historians, the matter will likely never be resolved. In some, there are clearly good reasons to doubt Jesus' historical existence, if not think it outright improbable. If it is true that Jesus never walked the earth, what would be the implication for Christians? All Christians past and present who have lived and died in his name, What were the disciples thinking? Why would they give up their lives to be torn by animals or to be bent if it is not true? Why would a nursing mother leave her baby and give her body to be bent or to be be torn by animals if this is not true? And why would today believers in Iran and in China, why would they risk their lives for something that is not true? The question is, does it really matter whether Jesus was a historical figure or not? The answer is yes, it does. Because Christianity rises or falls on the single truth that the eternal son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, living and dying and being raised from the dead for the salvation of all those who would trust in him. And that's why all opposition to Christianity seeks to deny the historical Jesus. This morning, as we turn to the book of 1 John, we receive a sure word from a more credible source than the Washington Post. I believe the apostles 
are more credible than Raphael Latesta. So this morning, I want us to turn our Bibles to the book of First John. As we read this passage, there are two things that I would like you to see from, from this book. So if you have your Bibles with you, just turn with me to, to the book of First John. There are two things I want you to see from, or I would like to draw your attention to this morning. And first is that from this passage, we see the basis of the Christian faith. The basis of the Christian faith. And second, the message of the Christian faith. If you are taking notes, this will be the outline of my message. The basis of the Christian faith and the message of the Christian faith. And as you turn to First John 1... You must understand that Raphael Latassa is not the first person to call into question the historical existence of Christ. Even in the first century, there were disputes about the identity of the man Jesus, which had led to divisions in the church. We read about that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. As a result of this dispute, a faction of the church had broken away because they had different views on what or who Jesus Christ was. And those who left the church had fallen into this false teaching, which denied the coming of Christ in the flesh. They denied that Jesus was a Christ. They denied the authority of his commands. They denied their own sinfulness and the need for salvation through his work. They didn't see righteous conduct as a requirement for fellowship with God. And what was scary was that not only had they believed this false teaching and left the church, they were also trying to entice other people to join their community. So John wrote this letter to the Christians who had remained in the church. And what he wanted to do with the letter was that he wanted to recognize the danger of the group and how their teachings threatened the faith and the community that uh, they had back then. In this letter, he affirms the cardinal doctrines of the faith, which, was, which has always been held by the apostles. And he exposes the false doctrine of those who had left the community. So this morning, we want to read this passage, and we want to get a sure word from the word of God. So follow along as I read 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So first, we want to find out what is the basis from this passage. We want to find out what is the basis of the Christian faith. And we see that from verse 1 to verse 3, John emphasizes the basis of the Christian faith. He goes to great length to provide evidence to prove that not only was Jesus a historical figure, but he also was a Christ who came in the flesh. Theologians call this the incarnation. Now, the incarnation is an act of grace where Christ took on the nature of man, came into our world, lived like one of us, except that he never sinned, so that he would be a perfect sacrifice for sin. When he took on the nature of man, he didn't lose his divine nature. He was both God and man at the same time. And this was the truth the false teachers were trying to deny. They saw Jesus as a mere human being and not God. 
according to the Gnostic teaching. This was a false teaching that was coming from the Gnostic teaching. The Gnostic, they told that the world was not created by God. They think that it was a lesser divinity that created the world as we have it. And so for them, everything in creation, whereas God said everything that he has created was good, for the Gnostics, everything in creation was evil because it was created by a lesser divinity. It wasn't created by God. And so according to their logic, if creation is evil, then Christ, the eternal son of God, couldn't have come in the form of a man. And that was their logic. So, therefore, in the first few verses, John tries to, to discount that view. And he, he labors at, at length to give us the reason or to give us a basis for us to believe this. And so he, he recounts his own experience as a proof that the man who walked on the shores of Galilee was indeed Christ, the eternal Son of God. Although he doesn't mention the name of Jesus by name, we, but we see from the way he develops his argument that he's really talking about Jesus. And so first, what he does is that he links his subject to the beginning. And so if you look at verse 1, he writes, that which was from the beginning. Once John goes to the beginning, we know what he is talking about. We know that he is talking about God because only God was from the beginning. Now, in his book, in the Gospel of John, he makes a similar point in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he goes on to write, not only is what I'm speaking to you about from the beginning, we also heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We looked upon him and touched him with our hands. No. The Bible says that Jesus spoke with such an authority like no other human being. The demons obeyed him. He forgave sin. He raised people from the dead. And John was a witness to all of this. So he's saying we saw him, we heard him speak, we touched him. And finally he goes on, he reveals what he is talking about. He says that what I'm talking about is the word of life. The word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus was from the beginning and he is eternal. And anytime we're talking about beginning and we're talking about eternal, we're talking about God. So there are different views on, on the phrase, the word of life, what it means. Uh, some commentators are of the view that this, the word of life only refers to the word of God and that John was not talking about Jesus as a person. But I, I am not persuaded by that view. When you read the whole, I mean, the first three verses, John was talking about a person. Because you read the, when you read the entire sentence, it is very clear the way he, he refers to what he is talking about. He says, he uses the senses, say, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. And so this supports the idea that what John is talking about, the subject of what he is talking about is Jesus and not the word of God. And so he goes on in, in, in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, again he repeats the point that they saw and heard his word, this word of life. And why is John emphasizing on this point because he's already said it that we saw him we we heard him we touched him in, in verse 3 he again talks about the same thing we saw him we heard him what we saw what we heard what we touched is what we we telling you about why is he going on on about that it is because that is what qualifies them to be the witnesses of christ their testimony is more credible because they were eyewitnesses of what had happened. You know, in, the, the, in, the, in the judicial system, the testimony of eyewitnesses are very crucial to any legal, any legal case. Right? The lawyers would always go through great lengths to gather cases or to gather witnesses for any case. And the closer the witness is to the event, the better a lawyer's chance of proving his case. And we know that the more the witnesses are, the better 
again, your case would be. So we see that that's another, another theme that we see. Not only were these eyewitnesses who were there, we also see that it wasn't only one person. It wasn't only John. And we see the way John speaks about that. He says that we, read, uh, we saw him, we touched him, and we, we sat at his feet. The reason why John is using all these uh, plural pronouns is that he's saying that I am not the only person who saw him. There were other people as well. As we read the gospel accounts, we see Jesus speaking to multitudes, which means that it wasn't only one person. On two occasions in the gospel of Matthew, we read that Jesus fed thousands of people. The story of Jesus was on the national news. It wasn't done in a secret. It wasn't in the corner somewhere where only few people heard it. It was, back in the day, it was on the front page news. And that's what we see here. So John is saying, we heard, we saw, we touched. And so when Raphael Latesta says that there are no eyewitnesses, there are no early eyewitnesses, that is not true because there were people they were, and it was more than one, more than two. There were many others who saw Jesus. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, dwelt amongst us, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he brings life to all who will repent and believe in him. This is the truth that the apostles, the apostle John, wanted to so much convey to his readers. It was a truth that for him was, was a burning truth. And the question is, why, was he, why did he want them to read this? Or why was he going so much into these details about what he saw and what he touched? And we see that in, uh, in verse 3. Verse 3b, if you look at uh, uh, that with me, he says that, So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Though his readers had not physically seen Jesus or heard him, John wanted them to have the same experience that he and the other apostles had. A deep and abiding fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. In a fellowship, when we hear the word fellowship, I'm sure even this morning we've used it somehow here. And oftentimes it can, it can come forth as an abstract term because we hear of it a lot in church. And we can often lose the weight of it, what it means to have fellowship. But in, this, in these verses, what John wanted to do was that he wanted to make it as practical as it can be. Fellowship is not just an abstract thing. It is a life that is restored back in relationship with God. A deep and abiding relationship, a deep and abiding presence of God in the life of a believer. It's a communion that affects our affections, and it affects our emotions. Our knowledge of God should not only stay in our head. No, when our knowledge of God must move from our head, move into our heart, and then it moves into our hands. And that is when we know that we have really, truly had a knowledge of God. When your knowledge of God only stays up here, it doesn't affect your emotions. It doesn't affect you, how you, you love God, how you, you work for him. But John wanted them to experience this fellowship. And that's why you see that he's using those words, words that are emotional. Say that we touched him, we saw him, we sat with him, we, we, we saw him. It's, it's something that must affect your emotions. The apostles, they dwelt in Jesus' presence. They ate with him. They saw him weep. They touched his resurrected body. They did everything together with Jesus. And that is fellowship. Life restored back in, in communion with God. You and I, both of us, we, all, all of us here, have not seen Jesus physically. Yet through the eyes of faith, John helps us to experience him as though we were there 2,000 years ago. And that is John's goal. And again, in verse 4, he tells us even the ultimate goal of all of this. So first, he wanted us to experience, have the same fellowship that they had when Christ was there. And then in verse 4, if you look at it, if you look at verse 4, he even tells us more about 
the end game or the end goal of why he's writing all of this. He says that so that our joy may be complete. The reason why the Son of God was made manifest, the point of a restored fellowship with God, was so that our joy may be complete in God. Christian, is, is your joy complete in God? Is your, your knowledge of God, does it bring joy? When you think about God, does it bring any joy? Or is it something that has become a chore? On Friday, do you come to church because this is what we do on a Friday morning? Or your affections are affected. You know that this God, it's a life that is restored to this God. Though I had sinned against him, he sent his son to come and, and to, to redeem us and take us to, back to the place where Adam could, could experience the presence of God, walk with him in the cool of the day and know that intimate, ever-abiding presence of God. Is that what you know? Is that what your faith is about? Or you see your faith as a chore? I need to go to church, that's why I go. I need to go to fellowship or I need to go for a home group. If I don't go, someone will point fingers at me. Is that why I go to church? Or I have that deep satisfaction. I have that deep joy of of doing it. That is why John was writing this. A joy that comes from fellowship with God. It's a joy that cannot be found in material possessions. It cannot be found in your job. It cannot be found in your car. It cannot be found in where you live. It cannot be found in anything. Not even in friends or not even your spouse. It's a joy that comes only from a restored fellowship with God. The question is, have you known this joy for yourself? If you're here this morning and you have not known this joy, I'm so glad you are here this morning. I invite you to turn away from your self-reliance and look to Christ. Because that is where you would find joy. That's where you would find meaning. That's where you would find purpose. And if you're here and you have already been restored into this fellowship with God, yes, I know you know that joy. But there is also a joy. That's another joy even that is beyond that joy of knowing that. It's a joy also of sharing this message with other people. You know, as you see other people restored to the same fellowship that you have with God, there is a completeness of joy that comes from that. You know, joy, you cannot hoard joy. Joy must be spread. It has to be sent out. And so when you have experienced that joy that comes from a restored relationship with God, you must be on the loose to share it. And that's what John was saying. He says that we are writing this to you. Yeah, we experienced it back then. We were in the presence of Jesus. We saw him. We touched him. We ate together. We did everything together. So I know that joy. But he says, I'm writing this to you so that you would also experience the joy that we did. And is that what you do, Christian? Is your joy as a Christian kept secret in your workplace? If you have truly known this joy, are you spreading it? There is a completeness of joy that comes as you see others who are on the path of destruction turn from death to life. This was John's motivation. The basis of the Christian faith is that the eternal Son of God became man so that we might become the sons of God. So that is the basis of the Christian faith. Secondly, we look at the message of the Christian faith. So look with me at verse 5. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In this verse, 
John tells us that not only did Christ appear in the flesh, but he also came with a message. And the message is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John is not referring to a particular message of Christ. So if you're looking for a verse in the Bible that says, oh, this is the message that Jesus Christ brought. No, he's saying it's a message of what Jesus Christ represented, what Jesus Christ brought when he came. So he's not referring to a particular message. He's talking about the sum total of Jesus' teaching while he was on earth. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, we read that it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, prior to Jesus' coming, God had revealed himself to man in many ways. Through creation, prophet, prophets after prophet came and brought messages off from God. But the coming of Jesus was the climax. With the coming of Jesus, we have a full revelation of who God is. And so the writer of Hebrews says that if you want to see who God is like, you look to Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And this Jesus, he came with a message. He was the exact image of God. And when he came, he came with that message. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Light, when you talk about light, light signifies splendor. It signifies holiness. It signifies purity, truthful, openness. These are, when, you, when I think about light, or when we talk about light, that's what comes into mind. And that's who God is. No, he is pure. He is holy. He cannot tolerate sin or any kind of impurity. And our fellowship with God should be based on this self-revelation of God. That God is light. That God is holy. So if we're going to have a, a fellowship with God, if we claim that we have fellowship with God, this is what must be guiding our understanding or our idea of who God is. And so as we saw earlier, uh, one of the false teachings of those who had left the church had to do with their understanding of sin. Right? So these so-called Christians had been influenced by some false teaching that was going on that claimed that what you do in your body, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't affect your salvation. So which meant that you can live anyhow or you can live whatever way you want and still claim to be in good standing with God. That's one of the false teachings that was going on there. What I do in my body doesn't matter. I am a spirit being. So only what I do in my spiritual state matters. And it was very popular back then. And I'm sure it's still a popular thing today. And this is the false teaching that John is trying to address in this section of the letter. So from verse 5 downwards, this, this is the understanding that he's trying to correct. That when I say that I have a fellowship with God, what does that mean? And so in, in from 5 to 10, he writes there are three claims about sin and about relationship with God that he tries to refute here. And so first, let's look at the first thing that he, he tries to refute. Uh, this is in verse 6. So look at verse 6 with me. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here, John is really hitting now at the core of the false teaching. These are people who claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. And as we said, God's self-revelation is that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Therefore, how can someone say that I have a relationship with God, I have fellowship with God when they are living in darkness? It's impossible. You cannot. So the question is, so what does it mean to be living in darkness? I can say that I have a fellowship with God. I'm saved. I'm born again. I love the Lord. But he's saying that there are people who can say that 
and still walk in darkness. He's saying that that is oxymoron. It's contradiction in terms. You cannot do that. But the question is that, is it possible that you're doing the same thing, that you claim to be a Christian and still be walking in darkness? What does it mean to walk in darkness? So Paul helps us with this. So I would ask you to just put your hand here and then let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 3 and 4. Paul helps us to understand what it means to walk in darkness. So just put your finger at 1 John 1. We'll come back to that. And then let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Here he says, Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Then he goes on in verse 8, and this is what he says in verse 8. He says that you did these things at one time when you walked in darkness. So the things that he is talking about in 3 and 4, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, things that are out of place. He says that these are the things you did when you walked in darkness. So it means that when I'm walking in darkness, this is how I'm living my life. A life of impurity, a life of covetousness, a life that is sexually immoral, talking anyhow. See, this is how you lived back then when you were in darkness. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, when we are saved, when we become saved, we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Therefore, claiming to have fellowship with God while still walking in darkness means you are not practicing the truth. And that's what John is saying. You may know the truth. I mean, it's possible you know all that we're talking about. But he says that if you do live like that, it means you are not practicing the truth. So the question is that, is that how you're living your life? Am I living my life in a way that is not in line with what I profess. You have a different life in the office. You, lie, you have a different life at home. The people, the folks in church know you as a different person. So it's like multi-personality disorder. You have different personalities everywhere. And you hope that nobody, the three of them will not meet. You, know, you have a different life in the office, a different life at home, a different life at church, and pray it very hard these three people should not meet. Because if they meet, you are in trouble. <laughs> so is that, is that you? Is it, is it that you that you, you're calling yourself a Christian but living a different life, walking in darkness? And then even in verse 11, Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 5, he shows us that there is even another part of darkness or another way of walking in darkness that all of us might even be guilty of. So he says that, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. So walking in darkness is not only doing the things that we've just spoken about, but also it's a life that condones sin. So you may not be actively doing evil or doing all the things we're talking about, but it's possible that passively you are also walking in darkness. Now, if your friends can continue their, li- their sinful lifestyle around you without ever being convicted about it, the question is that it's possible. Is it possible that you are the same? Because he is saying that do not take part in these things, but expose them. So is it possible that if your life, if you say you are light, and you come into darkness, and darkness is not exposed, is it possible that you're actually not a light? Because when I go into a dark room, even if you, you light a match, one match, the whole place comes out. So is it possible that you live in a life that sin can go on all around you, and it's not being convicted? 
So your friends might not change. I mean, they might live their lives the way they want to, but when they're around you, there is some, uh, they feel uncomfortable. When they live the life that they're living, sinful life they're living, they feel uncomfortable about it. If not, it's possible that your light is not shining. Because if it's shown, they will be convicted. I've seen people who will tell you, that, oh, this person is coming. We shouldn't be having this kind of conversation. They are your friends, but they don't have certain conversations around you because they know that you are light. Your, your presence convicts them of sin. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light, John says in verse 7, we see again in verse 7, if we walk in the light, not only do we have fellowship with God, we also have fellowship with one another. So look at that in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, not only do we have relationship with God, we have relationship with one another as well. So you may claim to have fellowship with God, but if your relationship with God does not translate into fellowship with other believers, you may be deceiving yourself, John is saying. And again, this exposes another false teaching, that Christianity is only a relationship between me and God. You know, that we, I'm sure most of us have heard that before. Oh, my relationship with God is, is personal. Yes, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. God is a relational God. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that's why there is nothing like a lone ranger Christian, a Christian who is walking alone. He is always the, first to co- the last to come in and the first to head out. If that's you, it's possible that you are worshiping a different God. <laughs> because John says that part of walking in the light is being in fellowship with one another. And so that's why in, in our church in Dubai, UCCD, we lay a lot of emphasis on church membership. Because we believe that walking in the light means walking in community. Keeping each other accountable and sparing one another on as we await for the coming of the Lord. So, are you a Lone Ranger Christian here? Are you a member of this church? How long have you been coming? I, have you, your pastors, do they know you? Are you the last, the, the last person to come in and then right afterwards, once the preaching is done, the first to head out? I mean, think of a family. We say that we are a family. Think of a family that nobody talks to anybody. It's a house. Everybody just walks in and walks out, and we do that all year round. How a family can that be? So are you part, if you're part of this covenant community, do your pastors know you? Do you know other people? During the week, do you have any contact with anybody in the church? Or is, oh, I come on Friday, I come again the next Friday. Fellowship with God means fellowship with one another. And then, again, there's one thing that John again mentions in verse 7 that I think it's good for us. So in verse 7, he says that if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's, it's, it's such a comfort for us. Now, walking in the light does not mean sinless perfection. As Christians, as long as we are on this side of eternity, yes, there will be days that we will, we will sin, we will, days that we will fall and God is saying that, the Bible says that if we have fellowship with God, what he does is that the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he cleanses us from all our sins. So although I'm saved, I, I repented from my sin, and yet God still makes provision for, for, gives me grace. When I sin and I repent and I go back to him, he cleanses, his, the blood of his son cleanses me. 
And one commentator puts it so well. He says that without Christ's ongoing cleansing, enduring fellowship would be impossible. For the guilt resulting from sin destroys fellowship. The result of that cleansing are forgiveness, restoration, and reestablishment of love. So, yes, Christian, take comfort. There will be days that you, yes, you know I'm a Christian and I go to the office. I know I don't want to be part of that conversation. And yet you became part of it. There are days that at home you snap at your children and you're like, oh, once again I do it. And you, you are hurt and you, you feel discouraged. Take heart, Christian. Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our guilt. He restores us again. And that is the God we serve. Gracious, merciful. See that we have a high priest who is not untouched by our infirmities. He went through the same things that we've gone through. And because of that, he is our high priest. So we, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and receive help and find grace in time of our need. And that is what it is. So all that we're talking about is that we can come back to God in fellowship because God desires to be in communion with us. So this is how John responds to the first false claim. He says, though you cannot claim to have fellowship with God while you still walk in darkness. Then secondly, there's a second uh, false claim that he debunks here. So look at verse 8. Verse 8 with me. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So note the difference between the, the, this claim and the first one. The first group claim to know the truth, but they don't practice the truth. They claim to know God who is light, and yet they walk in darkness. The second group, they don't even know the truth. Because denying that you have sin is self-deception. It's outright ignorance of the truth. This belief was based on the false teaching that regardless of what I do on the outside, the soul is never contaminated. These people sought to create a dichotomy between the body and then the soul. They want to give a difference that I can do anything I want in my body, but that doesn't affect my, spirit, my spiritual state. Such people cannot benefit from the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Because if you claim to be without sin, then why are you even here? And as strange a teaching as this is, there are people today in the church who actually believe this. The only thing is that they express it differently. I've had people who would come to you and say, why does your church speak so much about sin? Every Sunday we're hearing about sin and you have sinned and you've sinned. You're asking, why, why are you always talking about sin? And my response is always the same. It says that you cannot behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and not talk about sin. You cannot. You see the God who is holy, the God who is pure, the God who is light. When you come to his presence, you have no choice but to see how unworthy you are. <laughs> and that was what happened to Isaiah. He says that when I saw the Lord, I said, woe is me. <laughs> Look at me. I am undone. Because when you see God in his beauty, in his splendor, in his majesty, in his holiness, you cannot just, you just have to bow and say that, yes, I am unworthy. And that's why we speak about sin. And we, don't, we just don't speak about sin. We also talk about amazing grace. No, the, the grace of God becomes so amazing when I see the depth from which he has pulled me from. That is why we speak about sin. But these Christians, they believe that once you become a Christian, there is no more sin. Any talk of sin is seen as living a defeated Christian life. So according to these people, living a victorious Christian life means denying that you are a sinner. And a lot of the people in the faith movement think like this. So they will say things like, oh, don't confess that you are a sinner. Confess that you have victory over sin. That's how they put it. What they don't realize is that having victory over sin is more than just confessing with your mouth. It also means acknowledging your sin and repenting of it. 
John says that such people who claim that they have no sin, they are self-deceived. It's not talking about sin that make you sinful or talking less about sin that make you sinless. Instead, John tells us a better way. In verse 9, he says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, as Christians, we never condone sin. And no genuine Christian would make a habit of sinning. But denying that you are a sinner or choosing to not talk about it is not a solution. The solution is found in acknowledging who you are and approach God in faith and in repentance. This is what John is saying. This is what the Bible is saying. You cannot claim that once I've become a Christian, there is no more sin. No. As we said, we, we fall. We all fall in many ways. But his mercy is more. And then finally, the, the, we have the last claim that we see here. It says that we see that in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's very close to what we saw in verse 8. So the, verse 8 says that I have no sin. Verse 10 says that I have not sinned. Right? So verse 8 people say that, oh, once I became a Christian, now there is no concept of sin. The verse 10 people are saying that, oh yes, it's possible that there is sin, but I myself have not sinned. <laughs> so it's very familiar or it's very close to what we saw in verse 8. But that is, the Bible says that if we say that, we make God to be a liar. And of all the three claims, this is the most blatant of, of the three. Because we are actually calling God to be a liar. The Bible in many places says that we are like sheep, we have gone astray, and we have each turned to our own way. That is what, how the Bible describes us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, this is what Paul says. He says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Then he again says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The claim that we have not sinned make a mockery of the gospel. John says, You make God a liar. And his word has no place in you. What this claim is basically saying is that there was no need for God to send a savior. I am okay. You may be here this morning. And this might be your mindset. Thinking that I don't, I have not sinned. You may think of yourself as a very good person. I mean, I'm not as bad as other people. And that's how probably you think of yourself. I only make some mistakes. Don't blow it out of proportion. I mean, I know, I acknowledge that I make mistakes sometimes. And that is how you look at yourself, that I'm not as terrible as other people. What John is saying here is that if you say that, you make out God to be a liar. In Psalm 51, David said that, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is saying that all of us here in this room, no one, <laughs> nobody is exempted. All of us, we were born in sin. We have all sinned and we need to be saved. And that is why Jesus Christ came. So if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, I'm glad you are here. God is calling you to abandon your sin. He is calling you to stop your rebellion and turn to Jesus Christ. He's calling you that, regardless of what you've done, Jesus' blood is able to atone for that. Even people like us who have called God a liar, even us, there is forgiveness for us. This Jesus that we've been talking about, the Jesus who appeared the first time, he is going to come back. And this time when he comes back, he's not coming back as an atonement. He's not coming back as uh, a sacrifice. He's coming out to be a judge. And today, the Bible says that if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
Today might be your day of salvation. And God is calling you to abandon your life of rebellion and turn to him. So this is the, the message of the Christian faith. We saw the basis of it. The basis is the eternal son of God took on flesh, dwelt among us, that we might become the sons of God. And the message is that you cannot claim to have fellowship with God when you live in sin. You remember Raphael Latesta, the lecturer from the University of Sydney. He claimed that there is no historical Jesus. He says the evidence doesn't add up. But I will leave you to decide whether you trust a 21st century professor in Australia or you trust the people who saw Jesus, ate with him, sat at his feet and communed with him. This is the message they brought to us and all of us here must respond to this message. The question is that, is your fellowship with God true? Are you walking in darkness and claiming to have fellowship with God? Are you self-deceived in denying that you have no need of Christ? And are you calling God a liar? Whatever response you, you give to this message, one thing you should know is that Jesus came the first time. He's going to come back again. And at that point in time, it will be too late. Today is your day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice greatly in the fact that you spoke and you spoke clearly through your son. Thank you for the fact that we can have hope and we can have faith in what you have written. We pray this afternoon that you would cause your word even to, to arouse our affections. We pray that your word, Father, would deepen our affections and our love for you. Pray that we will live our lives even in the light of what we, we've just uh, listened to. We pray that you would cause us not to live in denial, but we pray that we would come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in time of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.